in many ways I don't feel well qualified to talk about spiritual receptivity, uh, particularly in the aspect of um, pausing in quiet, quieter times, because I, I just feel as I'm on a bit of a treadmill a lot of the time. You know, I'm, I'm just going from one thing to another, and I, I know that I need more quieter times. But I will give you a couple of examples of that. But I also wanted to give you examples of um, almost as though where a kind of reality breaks through or knocks on my door, as it were, in the midst, in the midst of activity. And I, I was thinking about how spiritual receptivity could apply to any of these uh, five aspects, five dimensions. So, you know, what would it mean to be spiritually receptive in terms of mindfulness? And I, I suppose it's like being aware of our thoughts and our actions and uh, well, applying how does that affect me? How does that apply to me? How does that aspect of the Dharma affect me in my life? So, uh, one of my thoughts that had a huge effect on me, and I, I have said this before, uh, was feeling that somebody couldn't organise a piss-up in a brewery, to put it uh, bluntly. And I used to think that my thoughts were private and didn't have an effect. And that thought was, uh, I think, probably the thought that made me realise of the underlying view of how I related to that person. And they couldn't organise a piss up in a brewery. I could. And, you know, there was a whole hierarchy of things. So that's one aspect of being receptive to my own thoughts. Another would be, I've talked about, uh, like the third chew of a bite of an apple, when there's a flavour burst and the world becomes magical, and being receptive to those kind of moments. So spiritual re receptivity in terms of positive emotion, just being open to people rejoicing in us. So, and uh, open to our own good qualities. And do we acknowledge those? Do we squirm? And I've worked a lot with that over the years. Spiritual death, and I will go into this in a, in a bit more, but letting go of views. Um, so there's something that happened to me on the convention last year, which I'll talk about later. But also like mundane things of, and I remember writing about this in the newsletter, uh, being really aware of feeling that I was breaking uh, the habit of a, of a first fetter when I chose a yellow jacket rather than a blue jacket. And just going against that habit of, uh, I don't have to be safe, I can choose a different option. Uh, I think there's uh, spiritual receptivity in terms of like a pragmatic aspect of spiritual rebirth of um, earlier in the year I was at a chairs meeting which was followed by a regional order weekend and the chairs meetings are so full that I thought oh actually I just want to go home I don't want to go to the order weekend and uh, you know I love order weekends I love being at Taraloka but I, I felt Again, it was like going against a habit, and I think in choosing to go home, even if I just did my washing and my ironing and shopping, was going against that habit of just carrying on regardless. And I think 
it's not quite spontaneous compassionate action, but uh, I think part of me putting myself forward as chair, when my head kept saying no on numerous occasions, was just wanting to respond to people in the situation here. And I know I said to Sona um, that I wanted to do it for me. You know, and, and it, it's a bit like for, for, from what I would learn by being in this situation. And I'll say a bit more about that. But really, uh, what I basically want to talk about is where I, I, those moments where I feel as though almost as I've been confronted with receptivity, almost um, uh, not beside myself, like against the grain of myself or something. I can't think of the word. Um, so there are a few areas that I want to talk about. One is uh, Vajrasattva. So he's the Buddha figure that I meditate upon, uh, not every day. Uh, and sometimes um, I need to talk to him, you know, literally talk in my meditation, uh, talk through my resistance before I'm actually receptive to doing the practice. So sometimes I will do 108 of the long Vajrasattva mantras during that meditation, and it can that in itself can take me between about 35 minutes and an hour. And sometimes I just don't want to do it. You know, I think I don't want to be sitting here for an hour and 20 minutes. So I need to talk about that. I need to talk about, oh, my back's aching and, oh, and all this. And somehow in mentally verbalizing everything that prevents me from being receptive, I get to a point where I know that I'm just ready to start. And it's almost as though I do that more with th that practice than I do with my, my other meditations. It's as though I'll give myself a bit of time to settle, but I won't necessarily uh, work through all my resistances. And it's really interesting just pausing and seeing if I need to say anything else. Yes, I do. Pause. Something else. And then I'm just ready to, to start the practice. And, um, and at, at the end of, um, of the entreating supplication part of a particular Vajrasattva puja that I do, the final words are, speak to me, speak to me, pure sound of the void. And I won't continue with the puja <laughs> until I've been spoken to. And whether it's literally Vajrasattva, whether it's something deeper in me, sometimes it's just one word. It might be uh, love or trust, or there might be a bit more of a message. And I think that is one of the times when I just really sit in that, um, in that bardo of, of quiet, of pause, of space and see what comes and something always does and it even though I know that and I can say that to you now it still surprises me that uh, I always get a response and it's uh, I want to say it's always what I need um, somehow it seems to have a pertinence 
um, that, yeah, I can't quite explain and I don't want to explain. Um, just walking down the street sometimes, uh, I'll catch a bit of white and Vajrasattva is associated with white. And sometimes it might be a carrier bag blowing in the wind. And the whiteness of it, or the curtain, or paintwork, or uh, a bit of rubbish on the floor, I will think Vajrasattva. Uh, and somehow just overtly trying to think that, and sometimes it just taking me by surprise. I, I feel as though I'm... I feel more open, I, I do feel receptive in, in that moment. That I'm, I suppose in a way that, it's almost as though it's a reminder that I'm a Dharma practitioner, I'm a Dharma fairer, rather than just this body walking down the street seeing a, a plastic bag or a piece of rubbish. And sometimes, uh, again to do with this particular puja, um, in the offering section, it's like, you know, offering the smell of jasmine on a summer's evening and various things. And as I'm walk going about my day, sometimes I will, I will offer things that I see, that I feel connected with, up to Vajrasattva. And it's almost like making the sadhana more, more of a, uh, my day more like a sadhana or more of a puja and I mean it's not all the time and you know a lot of the time I'm not at, not in touch with it but there are times when it um, well just reminds me that I am a dharma fairer. Um, I think mantras have quite an effect on me um, and sometimes I might deliberately begin to chant a man mantra, but sometimes it's as though it's just there. And there was one solitary I did in South Wales, and the Shunitar mantra just kept going through my head. And, um, you know, enjoyably so, and I was doing it all one day, and I went to bed with it, and I woke up with it, and the sense was, even though uh, I can't be accurate about that, uh, but the feeling was that it had been going on throughout the night. Anyway, carried on as I got up, woke up and got up in the morning and then uh, I was doing quite a long walk along the coastal path and I was still chanting. And as it was an area that I've, I don't quite know why I'm saying this, but it's an area that I've been to quite a few times and this was the first time that cows had been reintroduced or had been introduced to the coastal path. So a lot of the coastal path was covered with cow paths and uh, you know I mean it's just very very beautiful well not the cat packs, but uh, you know beautiful scenery so I was manoeuvring my way along the uh, coastal path chanting this mantra over and over and I just got a real sense of lightness and liberation and the fullness of the void of shunyata rather than the emptiness and even though I don't think this is literally true it's almost as though my walking felt lighter as I walked and you know it was very spacious beautiful sea 
that side green, this side cows dotted about. But um, yeah, I, I can't adequately describe the feeling, but this, this sense of well being in touch with something more and the, the positive, the freedom, the, the liberation of Shunyata. And well, I, I carried on walking and chanting, and I think this feeling lasted for quite a long time. And well, it just took me by surprise, really. Uh, and another aspect of mantra chanting was um, about three years ago now. I was on the ordination retreat at Akatavana. I was on the team, and during the uh, ordination period one of my responsibilities was the food and during that time I had a helper in the morning but basically I was working my socks off in the, in the kitchen and I felt so happy to be serving so that the ordinands could go for their walks with their private preceptors but I felt absolutely I was really tired and I checked out with the team how was I coming over? And they said, oh, actually, you know, you are tired, but you're very positive. But at night, uh, different mantras, I would just lie down and a mantra would start. And I was all right with that for a couple of hours. And then I thought, oh, for goodness sake, shut up, you know, let me get some sleep. And it would carry on. And uh, I'd be awake for four or five hours. I hardly got any sleep. And I was working my socks off during the day. And I, I felt positive but as though I looked a wreck and when one of the uh, private preceptors came I was telling her about it and she said oh it's just reality trying to break through and I thought oh of course that's what this is you know that's what mantras are and somehow uh, you know only getting a couple of hours sleep felt all right after that but it's, it's as though I couldn't quite get to that on my own you know I was yeah limiting you know two hours keeping me awake was all right, but four or five wasn't. And again at Akashavana, you know, I mean, it was very particular. It was an ordination retreat, but the, uh, the day of the public ordination and the day after, um, something was going on. I, I felt as though I was in a pure land. Um, there was so much love positivity and seeing these women ordained and what they'd committed to but it was as though there was something in the air um, I mean I didn't see them but I definitely had a sense of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas being in the sky uh, I don't think there was a rainbow on that occasion but there was uh, some very spectacular colours in the sky and whether it's literally true, whether they were rejoicing at these women having been ordained or, or not, but I felt transported. I, you know, it wasn't just up this mountain in Spain. There, there, was def there was definitely, I thought, there was definitely something going on. Um, So sometimes my thoughts completely take me by surprise. Uh, so I've given a negative example of that. Um, on the convention last year, um, 
We're in a discussion group. The third, I've forgotten what the third question we were asking ourselves was, but my immediate response was the word laughter. I thought, what do I mean? And I then just had, again, this sense of freedom and lightness and liberation. And one thought was, and it, it sounds really simplistic, that all I need to do is realign myself or align myself more and more with the Buddha and my views uh, will, will drop away, will dissolve, I'll be able to let go of them. And again, this sense of, of liberation. Um, I'm shaking my head outside, you know, I can't put it into words. It was absolutely amazing and, you know, it felt like such a simple thought, but I suppose a lot of me was behind it. And I think that is still working its way through me. So that happened at the end of the women's convention. And then I went on to the combined where there are men and women. To, uh, and I felt absolutely threatened for about three days. My body was shaking. I felt as though I was being poked to the depth of my being at this thought of letting go of views, you know, my ego dissolving. And I think those two things are still working themselves out now. Even now, not quite literally as I stand here, but you know, they were earlier in the day. Um, yeah, I, I, well, it's not quite a digression, but I feel as though I'm going through a lot of spiritual death at the moment. Um, and one aspect is feeling that I need to be without safety nets at the moment. I need to be without the things that I've usually relied on. It's almost as though I need to be groundless. And there is an aspect of that in terms of my views. Uh, and I suppose thinking of spiritual receptivity and threads in our lives that, uh, that keep us on the path, uh, even though it's very uncomfortable and I can still be in touch with a vision of wanting to transform myself. Um, And then, in a lack of integration, there are bits of me that kick in and want to stamp my foot and <coughs> resist. Um, I've got about 20 seconds left. <laughs> That's detailed. So one thing, uh, I think I also experienced, and, yeah, I found this a bit odd when I wrote it down, um, that my body often judders. And it started before my very first appointment at speech therapy. But what seems to happen now is I hear a truth and it seems as though it goes straight into my heart and my body judders as a response. Um, and although it wasn't quite the same, when Artaketu was uh, introducing that meditation and after he'd finished talking and he was just talking about the meditation and, 
and reiterating about the importance of pauses, it, it just felt as though it got in. You know, the, there's a truth, you know, there's such a fundamental truth in the importance of pauses. And I sat there juddering away. Um, This is quite a number of years ago, but I, re I don't think it was when I lived there. I think it was probably when I was on retreat, walking down the track at Toraloka. Uh, I suppose in a way it was mantra-like, um, just saying to myself, I want to die. I want to die to my limited self. And again, as I walked down the track, I got lighter. And I'm going to mention cows again now. It's not really that cows feature a lot in my life. But there was a field at Toraloka, and all the cows came up. You know, at the time, I thought it was because of the positive state I was in. I think they probably come to whoever's walking down the track. But again, there was this sense of, uh, I suppose freedom, freedom is one of um, the threads in my life that, you know, I, I want to be free, I want to be free of my limitations, I want to be free of my conditioning, I want to be free of what holds me back. And I suppose the more I'm in touch with that, the more receptive I try to be to what's happening and both how I can uh, initiate change and how I can be receptive to other people, my friends and uh, the transcendental to, to help me on the way. Okay. Thank you.